Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lecturing-based preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our pulpits. Uh, my name is Deacon Ali McMillan. I'm a Methodist deacon and I'm currently based at Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. I'm a member of the Methodist Diaconal Order, as all Methodist deacons are, and being a member of that order brings a sense of rhythm and wholeness to my life. Before I uh, came into ministry and trained for ministry, I taught religious education at a secondary and sixth form uh, college in Oxfordshire. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is coming alongside people as they find God at work in their lives. Each week, I'm joined by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and the political landscape. And I'm really pleased this week to introduce the Reverend Philip Brooks. Philip was ordained in 2007, following a career in the motor and finance industry. He now serves as the URC's Deputy General Secretary with responsibility for mission and is the URC General Secretariat representative on the Dominations Faith and Order Committee. Previously, he was a minister to two Methodist and URC LEPs in the Bolton and Salford and Bolton Town Centre chaplain. And he was trustee of the Greater Manchester Industrial Mission, which had oversight of several workplace chaplaincies, including Manchester Airport. During his time in Bolton, he represented the churches on Bolton's uh, council's local strategy partnership, which brought together leaders from education, health, politics, uh, police, commercial and charity sectors. Philip now lives in Coulston with his wife, Debs, who's a primary school teacher. And they have a grown-up son and two grandsons who live in Germany, as well as a daughter who lives at home and works for the NHS in the field of mental health. Well, huge amount that you've done in your ministry, Philip. We're delighted that you've joined us. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we know that politics in the pulpit can be a bit of a contentious subject sometimes, but we think here at JPIT that it's essential for the world around us to speak into our churches. When you hear arguments of people saying, oh, the politics should be kept out of the pulpit, how do you respond to that? Well, um, in all my formation training, then I studied contextual theology. So with contextual theology, the theory is everything connects. Um, I've always had a, a strong interest in politics. And um, so providing that it's politics with a small p, that we don't start kind of bringing in party politics to the pulpit. I think it very much connects. And indeed, um, more and more over the years, I've grown to see Jesus as a very political animal in the sense that, you know, we, we've got Ascension uh, coming up this Sunday, um, but it doesn't seem that long ago since we were journeying into Jerusalem with Jesus on, on the donkey, which itself was a political act, taking on the might of Rome the collaboration of the temple authorities with all that, um, the way in which they administered um, Jerusalem. Um, so actually, to me, at the heart of the Gospels, the heart of the Bible, um, are politics. Well, I mean, I have to say we're, we're pleased to hear that, but to hear that um, from your contextual theology perspective, I think is really helpful. So I'm sure you'll have lots to say to us today. Um, so from your context then, from your particular background and your experiences, are there any particular key justice issues or political events that you want to kind of highlight for us? Well, um, when I, I don't preach every Sunday these days, um, but I did used to do that. Um, and I would always start each week, I guess, with any um, any person who's going to take a service thing, oh, what am I going to do this week? <laughs> 
Um, and usually it would come to me a prompt from a news story. Um, and that was the same in the last few days. So I happened to be traveling home from Manchester to London, um, driving the car, and it was over the lunchtime, Jeremy Vine's lot. And um, they were interviewing uh, Quentin Letts, who is um, a writer, sketch writer for The Times. Uh, but they also interviewed Jonathan Bartlett, who is, um, or was, Green's Green co-leader, Green Party co-leader, a few years ago. In fact, I remember seeing him at Greenbelt. Um, and they were interviewing those two because they were both churchgoers and activists, um, but because they were commenting on the Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, speech in the House of Lords on uh, the Illegal Migration Bill. Yeah. Uh, and the whole thing was, should... Uh, religious leaders get involved with politics. So it just seemed quite appropriate, really, bearing in mind I was going to talk to you today. Well, so, so, you know, as you say, the things in the world that just really speak into uh, into what we're doing in church life, they're not separate, are they? Well, that's really helpful. Uh, well, uh, each week I asked Jay Pitt, my colleagues, for a little roundup of their expertise and what they think we might want to be keeping an eye on this week. And as you've said, uh, they also highlighted uh, the illegal migration bill passed through the Lords this week and um, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby's speech about it. Um, and just to highlight, there is a uh, an open letter on the JPIT website if people want to go in there and have a read and see if they want to sign that. They'd be really welcome to do that. And also uh, that President Zelensky uh, from Ukraine is visiting the UK uh, this week to discuss more military aid. Uh, so those are uh, some things going on in the news. And of course, there's lots of other things as well. Uh, I just add that we're also in the season of Easter still, just about, um, and this week uh, there's lots happening in the liturgical calendar or in the kind of church calendar. The 18th is Ascension Day and most churches will be celebrating Ascension uh, on Sunday. Uh, and for those of us with the Methodist background, the 21st is Aldersgate Day when we remember the conversion experiences of John and Charles Wesley. Uh, so if it's a Methodist uh, context that people are preaching in, they might want to uh, a link to that. Um, and also, we're just at the end of Christian Aid Week, which runs from the 14th to the 20th of May. So if churches didn't pick that up last Sunday, they might want to just um, highlight that uh, this Sunday. Uh, well, the Bible readings for this Sunday are Psalm 68, 1 to 10 and 32 to 35, Acts 1, 6 to 12, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, and then 5, uh, 6 to 11, and John 17, 1 to 11. Uh, so that's where we are in the life of the church and with our readings for this week. So with our metaphorical newspapers open in one hand, uh, let's turn to our Bibles. And Philip, I wonder where you want to begin for us this week. So I'm going to start with 1 Peter. And as always, when you are looking at the lecture readings, and often they, they, they may be readings you're very familiar with, but actually you come to it from a different context and you go, oh gosh, that sentence really leaps out at me. Um, so having mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, I looked at 1 Peter 4 um, and uh, it said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's taking place around you. And I thought, well, I know the Archbishop of Canterbury is very used to it and I'm sure that he is, um, you know, kind of fine about it all. But it, for me, it sounded a bit of a fiery ordeal. Um, you know, I was looking at the newspaper headlines, as you say, metaphorically, you've got Bible in one hand, newspapers in the other ones. And the, the son talked about the Archbishop of Canterbury getting a, a dressing down um, because of the fact he'd spoken out in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, and going back to the radio programme that I mentioned to you, 
uh, and that theme about whether the Archbishop of Canterbury should have said uh, what he said. Um, one of the, you know, you, you kind of listen to something on the radio and you, you start to get annoyed. <laughs> and um, with apologies to Quentin Letts, because I'm sure he's a lovely, lovely man. <laughs> but he did say something that really annoyed me. He said, you know, I go to church to sing hymns, to listen to familiar prayers uh, and to contemplate my mortality. Um, I don't go to uh, church to be admonished about what's happening in the political scene. And I just thought, you know, I'm not sure that's where a lot of us would see going to church because actually, um, yeah, we, we do go to church. You know, we all have individual faith, but it's it's a corporate faith as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, so that, that kind of really riled me as to uh, <laughs> you, you can limit. And, and the one particular thing that he said was that, um, and it was a sort of, you know, when he, people give a backhanded compliment, he said, um, so I could see that the Archbishop of Canterbury was very passionate about this thing and he believed in it. In fact, he seemed to believe in it more than, more than he believes about the gospel. <laughs> so, and that comes back to your original question, you know, if the Bible isn't about politics, what is it yeah. about? You know, if it's not speaking into people's everyday lives, if it's not about, as Jesus summed it up, bringing life in all its fullness, what is it about? Yeah. It, that's a fascinating uh, commentary from um, Quentin Letts there, isn't it, around what he thinks uh, church is about um, and the fact that if somebody is passionate about something, then they can't also be passionate about the gospel. Or fact that that might be a gospel imperative, which is driving their passion about uh, something else which is going on in the world. Uh, that's an interesting kind of compartmentalization, isn't it, of kind of world, politics, Bible, um, church, faith which obviously we would want to challenge, I think. And to be fair, I know there have been times in my faith journey when, you know, just going to church, being amongst that group of people was enough. Yeah. And it's only as I think you uh, continue that journey that you realise, actually, my faith does connect more widely than this supportive mm -hmm. environment. So I do get that, you know, for some people, church is a sort of security blanket that, protects you from the outside world but actually the more that I have uh, reflected and the more that I've traveled on this faith journey the more the more I see it as actually faith actually should challenge you and it should make you uncomfortable which comes back I guess to that point in 1 Peter 4 that you know if we are going to be serious about it then we do have to put ourselves up for criticism yeah, it makes me think of that that lovely phrase. I'm not sure if I'm going to get it right, but comfort the discomforted and uh, yeah. make the comfortable uncomfortable. I haven't got quite that right, but there are times, as you say, when we do need to be comforted. We need, you know, the the strength of fellowship and love, and and that's fine. But that's not all and everything that the church should be, and that should be happening in church on Sundays. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I, I thought. Um, then the um, the the, oh, the ex leader of the Greens did a very good job because he said, you know, um, that's what I want when I go to church. I want to be challenged, and, and, and you know, if it's not about um, the, the gospels, what is it about? Um, and if we're not going to challenge a bill that's unjust, and and he quoted the Refugee Council, but that actually the illegal migration bill would lead to forty five thousand children being locked up. He said, if we're not going to speak out about that, then what are we about? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I thought, thank you, Jonathan, for um, 
put in that put in that other context to it, which yeah. I would identify with as a fellow Christian. Sometimes that need to speak truth to power and kind of name what's happening. Um, right. Is there anything else from that first Peter lesson um, that spoke into that? Well, because um, and often, to be fair, when I um, when I take a service, I will pick an Old Testament and a New Testament. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. do the same. So I've gone for a kind of eclectic mix on all of this. So it's been quite a nice adventure this week. Because, yes. <laughs> well, I, I need to look at all the the, uh, the lecture passage passages. So again, on the same theme as what what are our gospels about? Um, I actually went to Psalm 68, Psalm yeah. um, of praise and thanksgiving. Um, and I'm just going to pick another phrase that jumped out of it, uh, but let the righteous be joyful. Mm. Um, and of course, righteous and righteousness appears a lot in the Bible. And I think one of the difficulties of our own language is that we don't automatically look at righteousness and justice as the same thing, whereas in the Greek and the Hebrew, it, the, the, you know, that's one term. Whereas we tend to separate it. And I think there's a danger that that actually when we read righteous in the Bible, um, that actually and, and righteousness that that we think in terms of holiness and being holy. Whereas actually it's helped me to every time I see that to translate it in my head to just and justice. So um for me that would be let um those who are just be joyful. And it reminded me of the hymn um by Shirley Murray. Um, which is a lovely hymn. I had it at my um, ordination uh, for everyone born a place at the table. Don't know whether you're familiar with it, but it has yeah. a really nice chorus in it. Um, for God will delight um, for those uh, who are creators of justice and joy. Oh, lovely, yeah. Um, and uh, to me, that is a kind of reinforcement of what we are here for, to bring justice and joy. So it was nice to see that. Uh, in that uh, psalm there. Mm. But also, again, to go back to, you know, one of the reasons why politics with a small p is such a part of, of um, whenever we um, bring the scriptures in, in a church service, that so much of the Bible, not just the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, is all about poverty and and the need to reach out to those who are marginalised. So, and again, this psalm is is a, a real reflection of that. So it talks about God as the parent of orphans and protector of widows. Um, God gives the desolate a home to live in, um, leads out the prisoners to prosperity, um, and then the promise that of the God who goes before us. So actually. And again, it's a fundamental element of mission is that, that we don't take God out into the world. Actually, we go out and meet with God already at work in the world. So, um, oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness. And, and that's a reminder as well that God's chosen people spent a lot of time as refugees. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. God was there with them. And, and it's a reminder that actually... So much of our rhetoric at the moment is is about trying to other people, and and mm -hmm. so we talk about invasions of of migrants, and we talk about needing to kind of repel them in a very inhumane way, and and that was a big part of what the Archbishop of Canterbury was saying. Yeah, that dehumanisation of of people. Yeah, other that, as you say, that othering. Um, yeah, I was struck in the psalm of you know that 
line about the orphans and the widows and that concern for the most vulnerable in society and how that speaks into where we're at in society or, or where we're not. Um, uh, yeah. And then, as you say, that kind of talking through the whole of the history, uh, really, of the people um, and, and how that connect, you know, the psalmist ties all of that together, this righteousness and joy, caring for the most vulnerable and the history of the people. And as you say, God's presence with them. I love that weaving of all those things together into, as you say, a psalm of praise. Um, I think that's, a, you know, a wonderful testament to, to God's presence in and through all those all those things. And, um, you know, the church is very good at being alongside, at its best, uh, at being alongside the marginalised. And and again, going back to my radio interviewed, uh, I mean, I was on my own in the car, so you, you can tell how much I dwelt on it. Um, so Jonathan Bartwell was saying, you know, what better organisation than the church that actually has so many parts of its outreach alongside refugees, advocating for refugees, that actually it can speak from personal experience. So actually, we, we, we actually not only have um, a biblical imperative, but we actually can draw from our experience. And, and again, going back to my studies as contextual theologian, you, you need to draw on context, but you also need to draw on your experience, uh, yeah. which is yeah. very much linked with the Methodist cycle as well. I know. You've been a good Methodist, haven't you? Absolutely. No, it is. And I've just been at <clears throat> uh, what we call diaconal convocation. So when all the deacons uh, get together every year and we have some really interesting presentations, but talking about moving from a model of being <clears throat> speaking for people, um, you know, to, to being with people, to actually moving towards a model of, you know, enabling others to use their own voices yeah. rather than even being with and certainly better than being for. And I, I found that a really helpful kind of model in my mind about how we can um be alongside people much in a much healthier way which is not patronizing or uh, you know any of those other kind of unhelpful patterns which sometimes in churches we fall into because from a, from a good place of wanting to help yeah. and 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 live out these gospel imperatives but sometimes we can find better ways perhaps and um I find that helpful and perhaps that speaks into some of what you're talking about yeah when i was in pastoral ministry um one of my churches in salford which is a Methodist URC LEP, we had several community projects there um, mm. and they provided community gardens, cafe, all sorts of projects for people from the locality who would not naturally see themselves as wanting to come on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, often people with addictions and all sorts of other um, uh, issues around their daily lives. Um, and what was really good was that they eventually got the confidence to talk to us. And I remember one point where they, the, the president of Methodist Conference came to a visit and they, um, we, we gave them the opportunity to um, speak uh, in that gathering. And it was very powerful. And, and it, it was a good lesson that it's too easy to speak on behalf of actually we should be enabling people to have their own voice. Absolutely. That's a wonderful story. And exactly that kind of actually we want to hear your voice. Your voice is different to our voice. I won't say what you say in the way in which you say it. Um, so hearing stories um, from people themselves, I think, is really, really important. Wonderful. Anything else on, on the psalm there? I mean, it's been a lot that we pulled out from that, but anything else that spoke to you? I just thought, I mean, sometimes you look at a reading and you don't get a huge amount for it, don't you? But actually, that really, um, I, I found that really helpful. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah. so I, I guess then, um, 
I'm going to move on to um, John 17. Yeah. So um, throughout my ministry, when I was in local ministry, I was an ecumenical officer. I came to Church House in London um, to be the uh, URC's ecumenical secretary. Um, and although I'm now uh, Deputy General Secretary of Mission, that includes our ecumenical activities. So um, John 17 is a gift for an ecumenist um, yeah. because it has on that uh, that wonderful line yeah. in it, um, which is, um, Holy Father, protect them in your name. So this is, the, if you like, the handover uh, of Jesus to his disciples and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Um, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Yeah. And of course, it's often called the um, the priestly prayer, isn't it? Um, that, that particular prayer. It's the longest prayer in the New yeah. Testament. And it's the prayer as, you know, Jesus is, is about to face uh, his ordeal on the cross. And so you've got to think that whatever Jesus wants to say in that is going to be really important. And so much so that call for unity in the in, in the same prayer, which the lecturer doesn't take us to. But actually, um, it goes on to verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one um, so that the world may believe. Um, mm -hmm. And and that's a, that's a verse that as I've... Um, work with ecumenical colleagues, you know, so often gets quoted in, in those settings. Yeah. But yeah. Um, the power of, that, that actually unity, ecumenism is not a sort of nice add-on. It's not the sort of, you know, it would be good if we could. Actually, we are not fully the church until we are one. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. because it's there in that priestly prayer that Jesus prays on the night before he dies, then actually we need to take it with that same seriousness that actually who are we as the church if we are not striving for unity? Um, which brings me back to how we speak into the public arena because the poor Archbishop of Canterbury got a lot of flack. Yeah. To some extent, you know, there was an element of reporting which was around, you know, he's going off on one again. Um, but actually, I think perhaps one of the frustrating things about the way in which faith is reported in in the news is that they just go for headlines and actually if you were looking at that story in depth you would say well this isn't simply the archbishop of canterbury this is the whole christian community which links to the work of the joint public issue team japer because you know last month we were there at number 10 downing street with the petition with 1450 signatures from church leaders campaigning uh, against the illegal migration bill. So actually, this was the Archbishop of Canterbury because he has that unique voice in the, in the House of Lords, but but it was not him alone. This was the whole Christian community. And and there's a lovely picture, if you go on the JPEG website, of um, Baptist representatives, URC, Methodists, <clears throat> but also churches together in England and churches together in Britain and Ireland really strongly saying you know we we feel as well this is how we, we have discerned what god is saying on this particular issue i find that really helpful that actually this isn't just justin welby one known soul voice who happens to be a christian but saying from a christian perspective we together stand and say 
we don't agree with this. We we challenge what's happening. I think that um, enables perhaps you know those of us who aren't for Church of England churches to to also speak into this and say actually our church leaders have also um, said uh, something about this that we can get behind. Um, so I think that's really helpful. And I think it's really helpful in the pulpit because of course you can then go on to um, you know. For, if you are talking about this issue this Sunday, for example, you might personally feel strongly, I, I feel strongly about it, but actually you're able to say, okay, yes, I agree with this, but, you know, this isn't just my individual discernment. And that's where JP is so useful that you can go to it and say, well, look, we share these views with our Baptist colleagues, with our Methodist colleagues, you know, as the URC. Yeah. And so often in our ecumenical work, we can get kind of caught up, can't we, in what we uh, think differently about or, or where we uh, practice things differently, uh, but actually to find the spaces where we have that common ground. Uh, and I think particularly in using our voices in the public setting uh, together is incredibly powerful. And, you know, there's nothing uh, more detrimental to, to the church than when we're all speaking differently into issues and, you know, the wider society goes, well, see, they can't even agree them between themselves. Uh, but when we can use our collective voice. And I think that then comes back to when, okay, I know I've cheated a bit and I've gone on in that priestly prayer, but it's the, it's repeating what Jesus said yeah. so that the world may believe. It isn't simply that so that they will all become Christians. No. It's actually so that they will join in with what the Jesus Project is about. Yeah. So it's about bringing life in all its fullness so that... If we are, if we speak and act in, in unity, then actually what we say is is enabling to convince people that, that actually you do need to listen to this. That actually mm. we do need to respect those who have been left behind. Mm. We do need to think of, you know, welcome the stranger. We can't create a society that's that's us and them. Actually, mm -hmm. in in the, the Jesus world, then we are all one. Um, and, and I think that's where the, again, the whole idea of unity isn't that add-on. It is actually that we can only be authentic when we are as one. Mm -hmm. I find that incredibly helpful. And, and in my mind, it ties us back to the psalm talking about the, the orphan and the widow, that, you know, caring for, for all of those who need it in society is a responsibility that we all have. Um, I find that really helpful. Um, was there anything in the Acts reading that you wanted to pick up for us i suspect many people will be picking up on this reading this sunday well it is the obvious one isn't it because the ascension is a big thing yeah. <laughs> um and for me as well it's that a point at which when we start to look to pentecost mm. um and often i think pentecost doesn't get the um the visibility it is you know everybody knows about easter everybody knows about christmas but often pentecost is a bit lower down in the pecking order which i think is a real shame because actually Pentecost is the living proof that, yeah. that what Jesus handed over is here. You know, yeah. we are here because Jesus handed this over to us. Um, I find it interesting that um, the, the obvious thing is that, you know, we want to get on with things, but I, but it does in this period as we go from the Ascension to Pentecost that the disciples gather and they gather to pray and they stay together. It's mm -hmm. not an instant, oh, let's get out there. Yeah. Um, the other thing which I think is really interesting in the way that the Bible's perhaps been edited, um, that phrase where it says they um, they were um, constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women. 
Um, yes. And, yeah. and, you know, for me, who would want to reclaim that role of women in the Bible, you right. can see that's, that's been downplayed a bit. But actually, it, yeah. it's a reminder that actually, you know, there were female and male disciples. Yeah. Yeah. And although they might want to downplay it, there must be a significance because it's not been left out entirely. Exactly. So, you know, that shows there must be actually quite a significant role of women going on. Otherwise, it would have just been one suspects left out completely. So, when um, the, we know that in the editing there was a there was a drive towards kind of making the the men front and centre. Yes. Yeah. As so often happens in in history. So, and, and again, with that, I would look forward to Pentecost. And, and I suppose just to draw on, on recent experience, which was um, uh, at the uh, World Council of Churches last year at Karlsruhe, mm -hmm. uh, where they held their uh, assembly, which takes place, should take place every seven years. It was delayed by one year because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and we gathered in Karlsruhe. We travelled together, which was lovely. We, um, so I went with Methodists and... Um, Baptist colleagues, and um, but then we joined in this huge gathering in Karlsruhe with thousands and thousands of people. Wow. And there was like a big tent where we worshipped together. Um, and that was such a reminder that we are part of something so much bigger. Uh, and I remember the final service at Karlsruhe, we've been there for nearly two weeks. And you had this wonderful spectacle of, you know, evangelicals, uh, you've got Orthodox um priests there you know and you can tell often by the the, the the different garbs but actually really getting lively worship together on that final service and, and I remember thinking on that day I wonder if this is a little bit like what Pentecost looked like yeah yeah um, I, I just we do need those reminders that actually we are a part of something you know the body of Christ doesn't recognize borders uh, it, it, it is global and we are one in that at our best. Yeah. So I think of a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, you know, all people together um, worshipping. Oh, that's a wonderful image of people from different denominations coming together to worship. I, I wish we could uh, see that more. And I thought you saw that at the coronation, you know, different denominations coming together and, and different faiths um, it, it being included in some way, which I thought was quite significant. And interestingly, going back to the coronation, and, and it was good. Um, so, for example, uh, I was delighted that Helen Cameron um, was had a part in the service as, uh, obviously, Methodist Chair of District, but she is moderator of the Free Churches group and representing all of us as Free Churches. So it was lovely yeah. to see that, as indeed uh, Mike Royal there, as, um, you know, General Secretary of Churches Together in England. Yeah. Um, but when I was looking at the Psalms and looking at kind of some of the commentaries, and one of the commentaries pointed me just four Psalms on to Psalm 72, mm. um, in which um, it portrays um, Israel's ideal king, and an ideal king is one who protects the poor and the marginalised and empowers um, his faithful people. Um, mm. And so it, and, and it asked to, to give the king and his son good judgment to help um, and to be fair to the poor and to save the needy. So mm -hmm. it's not very far away in, in, in Psalms, but it was I was interested that, that it linked those two together, 68 and 72, and in the context of the coronation. Um, yeah. And in many ways, I see, and 
I, I know in um, in the church environment there are some who are royalists, some uh, who are republicans. Absolutely. Uh, but I do see in King Charles III somebody who is um, actually has a heart to, to to use the influence that he has because mm. it is only influence um, for for good causes. Yeah, and that's the model for all of us, isn't it? We all have some realm of influence, uh, perhaps not as big as the sphere of influence that, that King Charles has, but we all have our own spheres of influence in our own lives, don't we, to to use for for good, hopefully. Yeah. Um, well, I don't... We included the, the different faiths as well for the very first time as well. Yeah, yeah. It was good that's to great. see. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I don't know if there's any final thoughts, any burning things that you really wanted to say while we've been talking about that you haven't managed to get in anywhere before we round things up. Yeah, I mean, I covered where I would go with it. Um, but I mean, as you began uh, in your introduction, mm. actually, there's a lot of choice this week, isn't there, in yeah. terms of what yes. you could cover? So yeah. um, apologies if, if for those who actually said, well, no, I'd go in a completely different direction. Um, oh, and you will see that we, <laughs> you might have heard um, our cat in the background, so joining in as well. But um, yeah, I, I, um, I wish people blessings for their service this Sunday. Wonderful. Uh, well, thank you so much, Reverend Philip Brooks, for being with us this week. We've covered a huge amount in there and I'm sure people will get much from it. And so thank you for coming on, sharing your wisdom and your reflections with us. We really appreciate it. And thanks uh, to everybody else who's joined us, either uh, listening to the podcast or watching the video. Um, it's really great to have you with us as well to ask that question of whether or how we should preach politics in the pulpit this week. If you enjoyed this episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and do share this episode with your friends. We have some online spaces where you can engage and have discussions with us about faith and politics. You can find us on Twitter at pulpit underscore politics or using the hashtag politics in the pulpit. And we also have a Facebook page where you can um, join together with us and you can find that through the Joint Public Issue Teams Facebook page. And of course, we have the website too, which is jpit.uk. That's J-P-I-T dot U-K. And the question that we're leaving you with from this week's episode is how we can challenge the comfortable in our churches and comfort the challenged, but also how we can use our voices uh, together uh, to bring wholeness of life to all in society. Uh, well, let's go into this week with uh, a blessing. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths and a strength to our lives. Take us and use us to love and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.